0: Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. (laughs) Joining me again today is Christopher Conway, a professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. He teaches Mexican and Latin American literature and culture in the Department of Modern Languages, His nonfiction book, Heroes of the Borderlands, the Western and Mexican films, comics, and music, was published in 2019 and takes an in-depth look at how the Western genre crossed the border and immersed itself in Mexican popular culture. Hello, friend, and welcome back.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to be here again. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we dive into Heroes of the Borderland, tell me a bit about your background, where you were born, what, if any, Western influences you had growing up, and how you came to be fascinated by the subject of the Western and Mexican pop culture.
1: I had a very peculiar upbringing. My parents moved to Spain from New York City when I was three or four years old. And so I grew up in Spain. Spanish was my first language for a long time. Now I'm pretty much even between Spanish and English, or in fact, my English is better than my Spanish. But for many years, Spanish was my first language because I was raised in Spain. And then as a teenager, my parents moved the family to Costa Rica and then the Dominican Republic. So I graduated high school in the Dominican Republic and came to the United States for the first time to go to college in California. And while I was growing up, I was fascinated by U.S. culture, by American films, by Hollywood, because I understood that I was not from Spain. (laughs) When I was a kid, I understood that I came from this magical place called the United States of America that I could not remember because I was too young when I left. And so I avidly consumed Western films and submarine war (laughs) films and anything related to the United States that was playing on Spanish TV. And there was a lot of American television available to me in Spain, all of it in Spanish, though. It wasn't until I came to the United States that I was able to experience some of this material in the original English language.
0: Wow, what a great upbringing. Thank you for sharing it with us. And, as we now know a little more about the reasons you came to delve so deeply into this subject, it's time to stampede the cattle and get on with today's feature. Early in Heroes of the Borderlands, you discuss the roots of the Mexican Western in films through the hypothetical absolutes of placing pastiche Westerns on one end of the spectrum and pure Mexican Westerns on the other, with all of the more interesting cinematic expressions happening in between. Can you tell
1: me first how you define these parameters? I would argue that there's no such thing as a pure American Western or a pure Mexican Western. I would say that all Westerns are somehow mixed or impure or eclectic. For the purposes of classifying films in my book, I wanted to show that Mexican Westerns had both American and Mexican elements, and some of them might have more Mexican elements than American ones or more American ones than Mexican ones, but they're always going to be films that are in between these two extremes, the purely pastiche copy of an American film and a purely Mexican, uninfluenced film
0: You also make a direct differentiation between American and Italian Westerns in dealing with the Mexican Revolution, either as a metaphor for the Cold War or alternately a denouncement of colonialism. And Mexican-made films dealing with the Revolution, which you assess as only tangential Westerns due to their true purpose as a nationalistic exploration of Mexican identity.
1: Yes, that's true. What might be confusing to listeners who are familiar with American Westerns is the fact that I'm arguing films about the Mexican Revolution in Mexico are not Westerns. And the reason why that might be confusing to your listeners is we have such a rich tradition of American Westerns set during the Mexican Revolution. We also have Italian Euro Westerns or spaghetti Westerns that are set during the Mexican Revolution. So for American viewers and American consumers of Westerns, this idea of the Mexican Revolution as being outside the genre of the Western doesn't really make sense. But within the context of Mexican film history and Mexican culture, there is the genre of the Mexican Revolution film, and it is completely different from spaghetti films set during the Revolution or American Westerns that intersect with the Mexican Revolution. And these Mexican films about the revolution are very meditative and reflective about the meaning of social change, the process of transforming society, and the more adventurous films that are purely bubble gum entertainments. These films, even though they have a lot of gun battles, their visual iconography and their thematic vocabulary is so standardized and so so specific to Mexican conversations that when I wrote my book, I very intentionally set those films apart and said, we cannot talk about these as Westerns when there is such a large corpus of films that are clearly inspired by Westerns and are clearly following the visual motifs and thematic motifs of Westerns as we understand them within the Hollywood context.
0: So you're looking at films like The Professionals and The Wild Bunch, American films set within the Mexican Revolution, as different from Mexican-made films strictly about the revolution. There's no American influence in that second labeling of films.
1: Yeah, that's correct. We've got art house films in Mexico about the Mexican Revolution that are very philosophical, often very pessimistic. They are films about the failure of the promise of certain political ideals and projects like the Zapatista Project or the Villista Project. And then we've got these more entertaining or crowd pleasing shoot em ups that are about the revolution, which are also very insular in terms of only speaking to Mexican concerns and Mexican iconography. So American
0: films will be made for an international audience. The Mexican films about the revolution that you're talking about are not. They're made strictly for a Mexican
1: audience. Not necessarily. In the mid-1940s, during the presidency of Miguel Alemán, between 1946 and 1952, that's what we consider to be the golden age of Mexican film. And in that period, we have this extraordinary boom of art house filmmaking in Mexico very aesthetic, very ambitious, very philosophical, deep, beautifully filmed productions. And in that period, there are a lot of films about the Mexican Revolution that have artistic aspirations and which really seek to speak not only to a Mexican audience, but also. An international one. The last time we talked, I mentioned Emilio Elindio Fernandez, who often appeared in American films as a villain or as a Mexican vaquero. He was a very important director in this period of time, and he made a series of art house films about the revolution and Mexican society. And one of them was shown at the Cannes Film Festival, a film called María Candelaria, which technically it's about the period right before the revolution. It's about the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, but in many ways, it's a film that explains why the Mexican Revolution happened. It's a kind of exploration of the symbolic necessity for the Mexican Revolution. And that screened at the Cannes Film Festival. In that era, those films did have aspirations to travel abroad. Later on, I think the circuit tended to be more within Mexico and throughout Latin America and Spain, because Mexico had the most important film industry in the Spanish-speaking world. Where did most Latin Americans get their films in the 20th century? There were small budding film industries in Colombia, Venezuela, Chile, yes, but The majority of films, the Hollywood of Latin America, was the Mexican film industry, and their films were also popular in Spain as well. And so these films about the Mexican Revolution were very much made within a Mexican context, but they traveled throughout the Spanish-speaking world. These are, in general,
0: serious films, but you also discuss the homegrown comedia ranchero genre, which you equate with the American musical western defined by the likes of Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. Why are these important to the discussion?
1: Yeah, so it's tricky to talk about Mexican westerns because film critics in Mexico and also cultural critics tend to disregard the western as something not worthy of discussion. And you need to clear a space to talk about the Mexican Western. And you've got these neighboring genres, which might appear to be Westerns in some way. And so I wanted to be diligent to really delineate my topic of study with care. The Comedia Ranchera, their musical films set in Haciendas, set in these idyllic ranches where we've got these aristocratic charros, fancy-dressed cowboys, singing songs and romancing beautiful ladies and having melodramatic situations and having villains and fighting them. These are films that are very nostalgic. They're all about the period before the revolution as a kind of utopian and beautiful period of time. The Comedia Ranchera, In some ways, some critics have called it a reactionary film genre that to some degree is rejecting the legacy of the Mexican Revolution in favor of looking backwards in time to this highly stratified, unjust hacienda society and idealizing it through a very folkloric, a very exotic representation of fancy-dressed cowboys and señoritas and a lot of singing and comedy And so these films were extremely popular in Mexico and throughout Latin America, particularly in Colombia and Venezuela. When I traveled in Venezuela in the 1990s, I was struck by how much Venezuelans knew about Mexican music. And part of it has to do with the influence of the comedia ranchera genre. These films really are not about gunfighters and the clapboard towns, about cowboys and Indians and all of that stuff that we associate with Westerns. And so I wanted to focus the book very clearly on films that were undisputably Westerns. Basically, you're saying these were films that looked back at Mexican
0: history through rose-colored glasses.
1: That's right. These films are like pageants. They have very elementary plots about good versus evil, good men and bad men competing for the love of a senorita. And I use that word very intentionally, right? Because it's this kind of exotic and trite word. These are films that celebrate the iconography of of the charro and the charro is this fancy dress Mexican cowboy. But most of the films I talk about in my book, these hybrid Mexican westerns that have Mexican and American elements in them. Most of these films don't have charros in them. And this is the point, right? Mexicans are making films and they're dressing their characters, their protagonists in ways that mark them as American cowboy heroes. They're speaking in Spanish, but they're walking around in a world that looks like The Hollywood Western set. And in fact, the most important comic book in terms of the Western in Mexico is a series of comics in which Mexican characters never appear. How is it possible that the most important Mexican comic book of the last quarter of the 20th century is a Western called El Libro Vaquero, a cowboy book? How is it possible that brand of Western does not feature any Mexican characters? All the characters are white or they're Indians. Sometimes there are black characters in them, maybe once in a very long while a Mexican might appear, but basically there are no Mexicans in that comic. There were Mexican authors using American-sounding pseudonyms and writing stories about white cowboys and Indians and white women and speaking to a Mexican audience. And that was not only the most popular Mexican comic book western of the latter half of the 20th century, but arguably the most popular Mexican comic book of the last quarter of the 20th century as well. And that's a really fascinating topic to study from a cultural point of view. It's
0: somebody else's culture, and yet it is the most influential upon the culture absorbing
1: it. Exactly. The question I think is most interesting is, what is Mexican about this comic? Should we just say, oh, it's just a copy of American Westerns, case closed, there's nothing to say? That's been the attitude of many critics in the past who have disdained to talk about this comic. And Bruce Campbell, a scholar of Mexican comic books, who wrote a book called Viva la Historieta. It's a book in English, but the main title is called Viva la Historieta. Historieta is the Spanish word for comic. He poses a really interesting interpretation of El Libro Vaquero. He says, even though racially and ethnically these characters are presented as Anglo-American or Native American and Black, the storylines and the themes speak directly to Mexican topics and Mexican cultural themes. And that is something that I build on in my book. So, for example, all of these stories in this comic book, El Libro Vaquero, are stories about cross into a new land, trying to find a new home. And so Bruce Campbell has argued these are stories about immigration, about moving from one community into another community, of trying to find a home in a hostile and foreign land. Now, we understand that this is a very common motif in Westerns in general, right? The whole pioneer story, the journey story, etc. But in the context of Mexico, These comics, Bruce Campbell argues, are presenting a reflection and a meditation on the experience of Mexicans migrating across the border into the United States. So these are very complicated, somewhat theoretical arguments Campbell and I develop in our respective books, but this is what's Mexican about this particular comic. It may not seem Mexican, but these are storylines that speak very directly to Mexicans. In fact, one of the publishers of El Libro Vaquero, it had several different publishers between the 1970s and up into the 2000s. They did a study of who their readers were, and they discovered the number one comic among Mexican immigrants in the United States was El Libro Vaquero. So it is true, this comic, which is about traveling, which is about trying to find a new home, which is about trying to negotiate issues of ethnic diversity, right? How to coexist with Indians, coexist with the military coexist with different kinds of people in the American West, that all of this really did resonate with people who were emigrating. In fact, the Mexican government in 2005 produced a comic book to help Mexican migrants who were crossing the border keep safe. And they sold that comic in packages wrapped with a libro vaqueros. The Mexican government is saying to itself, how do we communicate with people who are trying to cross the border into the United States in 2005? Oh, we know what we're going to do. We're going to take our comic book manual in terms of how to protect yourself, how to not starve in the desert, how to be careful around the coyotes, how to seek for help if you get arrested. Let's package that with a Libro Vaquero. That's the comic that everyone's reading. That's the comic that's in the back pocket of the migrant.
0: So in reality, this is a deeply Mexican comic, even though on the surface, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with the Mexican culture.
1: Absolutely. And that's what's fun about doing this kind of research, right? It's not just an issue of cataloging and classifying, but also an issue of trying to get to the bottom of what's going on here why is this comic resonating so much with a Mexican audience? Because it shouldn't resonate. And this is where critics like Bruce Campbell and myself and others are trying to understand comics in a deeper way. Comics are not just entertainment. They also are a symptom of what's important in a particular culture. It's a manifestation of what's important in a cultural conversation in a particular moment in time. And so we look at comics in different periods and we can learn things about the historical and cultural context of that moment.
0: Getting to the actual essence of the Mexican Western, do you see it beginning with the folk traditions of the mixing of the Mexican corridos and then being influenced by the style sets and costumes of the American Western as Mexican media absorbed those images and influences and then repackaged them for popular consumption?
1: That's an excellent question, and thank you for reading me so closely and thinking about it in a way that's so deep, Paul. I do propose that we have in the 19th century and early 20th century a bandido tradition in Mexican folk music, the so-called corrido. In English, we translate that as ballad. The corrido is a genre that, if we look at it from a genealogical point of view, it originates in medieval Europe, in Spain in particular, in the 16th and 17th centuries. The conquistadores who came to the new world in the 16th century, they brought with them not only their horses, their weapons, and their foods and books, but they also brought their song traditions, their Spanish poetry, and these songs, which originally in Spain were called romances, these ballads over centuries evolved in Mexico and Central America and became the genre of music that we call the corrido the contemporary Mexican corrido. Nowadays, we talk about narco corridos, which are related to these bandido corridos from the 19th century. And in these corridos, we've got a tradition of gunfighters and bandidos. We even have a corrido from the mid-19th century, the corrido of the 500 steers, the corrido de Quianzis, which is about a cattle drive to Kansas, that some Mexicans made in the 1850s or 1860s. And this is a very well-known corrido, a very well-known classic corrido. And that is a corrido that we could somehow fit in with Western iconography. We've got corridos like the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez As many of your listeners know from the film with Edward James Olmos was a Mexicano here in Texas who shot the sheriff and was hunted down by hundreds of Texas Rangers, captured, put in jail, but then eventually pardoned and liberated and he became a folk hero. So the corrido of Gregorio Cortez from the turn of the 20th century from 1901 is a corrido that has a lot of the elements of a Western. It has sheriffs, it has guns, it has chases. And I argue in the book that there is this story tradition in Mexico about gunfighters and about bandidos. And when the iconography of the American Western enters Mexico, we have this coming together of foreign iconography with local iconography. And these iconographies are not dissimilar to each other. So they blend together very well.
0: And it wasn't just the American Westerns that were having an influence on Mexican filmmakers. Italian made Westerns also got in on the act, creating what you describe as spaghetti con chile.
1: Yeah, I had fun naming that chapter Spaghetti con chile. One of the parts of the book that I most enjoyed researching was how spaghetti Westerns began to impact Mexican audiences. It seems that the first Spaghetti Western to really make an impact was Fernando Sergio's Mutiny at Fort Sharp. That hit Mexican movie theaters in 1966 and made an impression. That was immediately followed by The Hills Run Red, a film by Losani. Those two films really catch the attention of film audiences in Mexico City. When Leone's film, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, appears in 1969 on Mexican screens, it played for nine weeks. In Mexico City, which doesn't seem like a lot, but I compared it with how long other films were playing that year in 1969, and I couldn't really find too many examples of any film that played for nine or ten weeks. And then They Call Me Trinity is when it really hit hard. 20 plus weeks on screen in Mexico City, which is extremely unusual. And so with the information about how long all of these different films were playing in Mexico City, I was able to get an idea of what was exciting film audiences. It is in this moment that one of the greatest film directors of Mexican Westerns, Alberto Mariscal, started to make so-called Chile Westerns in the late 1960s on the heels of these spaghetti Westerns that were entering Mexico. And what's interesting about Mariscal's films, and there are many of them that I discuss in the book, is that they traveled the same international circuit as the spaghetti Westerns were traveling. So if you lived in Yugoslavia or Poland or Brazil or France, you would see a Mexican Western directed by Alberto Mariscal in the same way, with the same kind of movie poster in front of the movie theater as any spaghetti Western. In my book, which has many color illustrations, I reproduced some foreign posters for Mariscal's films, including an Italian poster for one of his greatest films called Todo Por Nada from 1968, All for Nothing. If you looked at that poster by itself, you would go, oh, here's just another Spaghetti Western. I don't happen to know this one. So there's this interesting fusion between the Mexican Western and the Spaghetti Western, not only in terms of themes and style, but also in terms of how they move internationally and transatlantically through movie theaters. And for viewers around the world, it would be difficult to differentiate between these Westerns and a spaghetti Western.
0: You also talk about in the book what you've termed the myth of the tragic gunfighter. How is it important in the genre of Mexican Westerns, this specific term?
1: The myth of the tragic guns has to do in part with one of the biggest themes in Mexican intellectual history and philosophy, which is tied to a book called The Labyrinth of Solitude by Octavio Paz, who won the Nobel Prize in the 1980s, if I recall correctly. The Labyrinth of Solitude is this grand mythopoetic interpretation of Mexican identity. And I just want to caution your listeners that what I'm about to say is not being presented as a scientific or sociological truth about Mexicans, but just a reflection of what Octavio Paz was trying to say in a very poetic and mythical way about Mexican identity. Octavio Paz argues that the Mexican is haunted by the trauma of the conquest of the new world, of the conquest of Mexico by the Spanish in the 16th century, in particular by the motif of rape, because there's this character in the historical record, La Malinche, Malincin, an indigenous woman who was gifted to Hernán Cortés by some of the Indians that he encountered when he arrived in Mexico. And she served as a translator for the Spanish while they were conquering Mexico. She knew how to speak Mayan and Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs. And Cortés had with him a Spanish soldier Jerónimo Aguilar, who had been captured by the Maya and had lived with the Maya for a few years. So, by teaming up La Malinche with Jerónimo Aguilar, Cortes was able to negotiate all the politics required to conquer Mexico in 1521. And so, La Malinche in the Mexican culture is associated with betrayal because she was gifted to Cortes, it's associated with rape. She was his concubine, quote unquote. When he was done using her to help with the military enterprise of conquest, he just gave her to one of his lieutenants. She's a figure that's enmeshed in these conversations about the symbolic mother of Mexico as a victim of rape or as a collaborator with the conquistador. It's a very complicated topic. It appears in Mexican culture, in film, in literature, as a way of exploring trauma and the contradictions of identity. We've got all of these stories. So, to put it simply, the myth of La Malinche is so powerful in Mexican culture that there is even a term that Octavio Paz discusses in The Labyrinth of Solitude, which is malinchista. If someone in Mexico says to someone else, you're a malinchista, it's like saying you're a Benedict Arnold. It's like saying you are a traitor. The fact that this issue of betrayal is associated with rape, it's associated with intercultural conflict between whites and indigenous people, All of these themes are infused into Mexican films about power relationships between men and women and between men with power and men without power. Octavio Paz's book gives us a vocabulary for talking about certain themes that appear in Westerns.
0: This is very heavy stuff because there's two sides of an issue here all played out at the same time.
1: Yes, that's correct. There's a concept in Mexican
0: culture of the charo. which is closely tied to the Mexican Western. How would you define a charro, and how has the image become a specific subgenre of the Mexican Western?
1: So the charro is a fancy-dressed cowboy. He is not a working cowboy. He's not the vaquero who's working on the ranch in an everyday context. He's more a figure of pageantry. He's a figure associated with displays of masculinity and rodeos. He is a figure that was appropriated by the Mexican Revolution, by the cultural establishment that came out of the Mexican Revolution as a symbol of Mexico, which is why the huge sombrero, the mustache, the fancy dress that we associate with the mariachis, all of that becomes something that is promoted by the Mexican government as a symbol of Mexico, as a way of celebrating national identity. And so I argue in, my book that most Mexican Westerns are not really in dialogue with Charro iconography, with the exception of one series from the 1940s called El Charro Negro. My argument is that this is such a Mexican flavor, such an icon that is so exclusively Mexican that it really is its own thing. It's separate. And the Mexican Western, of which there are so many examples, are films and comics that are modeled on Hollywood or American-type Westerns, short-brimmed hats and vests, maybe a a leather bracelet and things like that that we associate with the dress of American cowboys.
0: And aside from the charro-influenced films, you also break down Mexican Westerns into a whole number of other subgenres, each with its own flavor— Let's talk a little bit about Calvera Westerns or Skull Westerns to translate the term, which placed the Charo image into a mix with Supernatural or Day of the Dead iconography.
1: Yes, that's correct. There are so many cheap or serialized type Mexican Westerns in the 1950s. And in terms of genre mixing happening as well, where you will mix horror Iconography with Western iconography. And these Calavera Westerns are either comics or films that use horror motifs to enhance the adventure story of the Western. We have many different types. We've got Zorro-type adventures that have supernatural elements. And one of the main series from the 1950s starring an actor called Luis Aguilar is called El Látigo Negro, The Black Whip. We also have several comics, one in particular that I study called El Solitario, the solitary one, which uses iconography associated with skulls to link up the storylines and the themes to the cult of Santa Muerte. And I know you're aware of this, and maybe some of your listeners are as well. Santa Muerte is this cult around the figure of death. That has become really important in Mexico in the late 20th century and in particular the 21st century. A lot of the drug cartel figures and people involved in certain kinds of crime in Mexico have also gravitated towards that kind of religious cult. I argue El Solitario from the 21st century is a comic that is in dialogue with the Cult of Santa Muerte and using some of those messages and themes of the Cult of Santa Muerte to communicate with its readership.
0: The Calvera Western, to me, seems to equate with the weird Western genre of American Westerns, the Jonah Hex, the many other zombie Westerns and those types of things. But El Solitario seems to carry a massive weight of emotion on its pages that are tied to Mexican politics, anti-Americanism, I don't know, economic disasters, narco culture, sexual violence and oppression. Just to scratch the surface, that's a lot to ask of a comic book.
1: (laughs) It's such a fascinating and opaque thing to try to study and to try to understand. I think you're so right when you talk about the weird Western. That is a great comparison, but it's true that El Solitario is its own Thing And what's curious about El Solitario as well is it is very emphatic about telegraphing to its readers its love of American Westerns. So on the back covers, they will have famous paintings by Remington, or they will have in the last few pages of the comic a little essay about John Ford, or they will have maybe an anecdote, a true history of what happened to the Lakota at a particular point in time. The makers of El Solitario, apart from doing all this pulpy and rather disturbing stuff with the Cult of Santa Muerte, which is so Mexican, they're also saying to their readers, we want you to learn about John Ford. Here's a great Gregory Peck Western. Right. And that is a very good example of how Mexican Westerns toggle between Anglo-American or Hollywood type themes and myths and exclusively Mexican obsessions, right? Such as narco-violence, the cult of Santa Muerte and other cultural issues like mestizaje and the racial dynamics between Indians and whites in Mexico or mestizos, which is very different than what we see in the United States. That are specifically Mexican. Correct. Yeah, specifically Mexican.
0: Chris, there's the clanging of the truck wagon triangle telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. But before we go, can you give us what films do you think best display the ethos of the Mexican Westerns? What films would you recommend to somebody who wants to start exploring the realm of the Mexican western?
1: I would recommend that your listeners go to YouTube and look for a film called Tunco Maclovio. And I'm going to spell it out really quickly. That's T as in Thomas, U-N-C-O, first word, Tunco, and then Maclovio, M-A-E-L-O, V as in Victor, I.O. And that film is available in its entirety on YouTube. And I think your listeners will find it very interesting. You can also watch some of the Charro Negro films on YouTube. And finally, I would also like to recommend the films of Antonio Aguilar, who was an extremely popular movie star in the 1950s through the 1980s, really.
0: Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate you being with me today. Now, I know I've bothered you for two episodes here, but I've asked you also back for a third episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast. There, we'll talk about the Westerns' comics on a global scale. And I'm really looking forward to that, too. So thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks to our Mm -hmm. Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, SixGunJustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.